The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, A Church for the City. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 11, chapter 13, and chapter 14. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, 
no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and have persuaded the crowds they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the way that you promised to be here in spirit and in truth. And we, have, um, we can testify to that. We felt your spirit this morning. And so we uh, thank you. And I ask that you would now uh, anoint me, that I could speak your words, um, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that your people would hear you and not me. Give me wisdom. Uh, give me grace. And would you help us here? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I've got something going on. I sound weird. I sound, I'm in a barrel up here. Um, well, welcome again. Over the past six weeks, we have been studying what it looks like to be a church for the city. I found, sound better already, whatever you just did. Uh, we've learned that God desires us to seek the good and welfare of our cities and not just the good of our church. Now, if this is really going to happen, if we are really going to renew our city, there's at least five things that have to happen. We've already covered the first four in this series, but I want to review them really quick. First, the church exists to connect people to God. We desire to be a place where people who don't know God come to know him in a saving way through his son, Jesus Christ. Second, the church exists to connect people to one another. 
This requires us to cross all kinds of dividing lines, that God has made us into a diverse community that better represents the future diverse community of God's people of every nation and every tongue. Third, the church exists to connect Christians to the needs of the city, that we should be the soul of the city, meeting needs, healing hurts, working for justice for those who don't have a voice in our community. Fourth, the church exists to connect Christians to their work in the city in a gospel-centered way, that we want to do good work in our city like God did in creation. We want to maintain a healthy relationship to our work through the rhythms of working hard and resting well. We don't want to demonize work nor idolize our work. And today we're covering really the last aspect of renewing our city for the glory of God. If we are really going to renew our city and make it a better place to live in, we have got to plant more churches that do all of the above that we've already talked about. Now, you might look around the Quad Cities and say, there seems to already be a lot of churches. I got one of these, I got this ancient artifact thrown onto my porch a couple weeks ago. It's yellow, it's like this big, and it's about that thick. And I picked it up, and my kids were like, what is this? I'm like, this is called a phone book, son. <laughs> and I just for giggles scrolled through it and looked at churches, and there were hundreds or thousands of names of churches, churches that I have never heard of in the Quad Cities. And you might look around or drive through our neighborhoods and go, do we really need more churches? There seems to be a lot of them. Well, if you've been part of our church for very long, you should already know the answer to that question. Last year, the Barna Research Group released a study on the church attendance in America's cities. Please show that slide. Ooh, on it today. Love it. Now, you can hardly read this. I apologize, but I can read it, so I'm going to read it to you. America's top churchless cities. No surprise here. San Francisco, number one. Burlington, Vermont, number two. We got Boston, Massachusetts. We got Portland. We've got Redding, California, Las Vegas, Seattle, Albany. Basically, we've got coastal cities, right, for the most part. Not a real big surprise. I usually get these articles and I just skim through them. I don't really pay them much attention. For whatever reason, I kept reading until I got to 27 and nearly choked. Davenport, Iowa, Rock Island, Moline, that we were the 27th least churched cities in the United States, that we need more churches. Now, I've been hammering this for about a year as it came out, and it just so happens that this week, Barna released a new study uh, called America's Most Post-Christian Cities. Post-Christians, more than just church attendance, this analyzes how often people read the Bible, how often they pray, how often they give of their resources, how often they volunteer, how often do they believe that Jesus was God, do they believe Jesus committed sins. There's 15 different markers they study here to determine how far post-Christian a city is. Uh, oh, goodness gracious. Well, thank you very much for that highlight. But anyways, the top 10 were no surprise, and then I got to 15, and I'm like, what is going on? Davenport, Rock Island, Moline, just for giggles, number 17 is San Francisco. <coughs> Coastal cities and then us right smack dab in the middle of the Midwest. Is there one more slide you can show? One more graphic I think I had. 
There we go. In the 1990s, 30% of people uh, were basically churchless. In 2000, it's 33. In 2014, it has gone to 43%. This is our, this is our national uh, numbers. 49% that we call, they call are actively churched. 8% of those minimally. That means they come to church basically Christmas and Easter or weddings, uh, things like that. 33% of our nation are what is called de-churched. Maybe they were raised in church. Sometime in their life, they used to go to church, and now they no longer do. And then there's 10% are purely unchurched. So I just want to help us make sense of some of the things that, are, that have been going on in the Quad Cities. Many of us have wondered, why is it so hard to make disciples in the Quad Cities? Well, that statistic should at least give us some encouragement this morning that we are, the, we are, leading, we are in a post-Christian city that we, don't even, we didn't even probably recognize that or realize that. We believe New York and San Fran and, and Seattle and all these places are post-Christian. We're the good old Midwest. But the good old Mid Midwest is also a post-Christian reality where many people, more than the statistical averages of the United States, are not going to church and they don't see the church as relevant to their life anymore. And so in the midst of this, let me encourage us, in the midst of this, we have consistently grown by 10 to 20% every single year, year and year over year. And we've got to plant a church over in Moline and we're, we're planting churches and seeing God do great things. So in the midst of this really tough soil and this really difficult context, God is still moving and we have a lot to rejoice over. Amen. Now, I'm going to share another interesting statistic for us that I learned last year while at a conference in Chicago with the church staff. It was from a study done in Canada, and the study revealed, quote, this is, I'm going to quote here, the value of religious congregations to the wider community is somewhere in the order of four to five times a congregation's annual operating budget. For example, if you removed a congregation with a $250,000 annual budget, the very conservative estimate of the study suggests you would need about $1.2 million investment every year from the city to sustain their economic cont contribution to the community. So for every $250,000 of church budget, it takes $1.2 million from the city to replace the good work that that church is doing in the city. All right? So that's... Off the top of my head, according to our church budget here in Davenport, it would take roughly $3 million or more from the city to replace the economic impact that we are having in our city. Praise God. Churches provide value to their community. They're good neighbors and they work for the good of the city they volunteer in soup kitchens. They educate underprivileged children and they serve the needs of the city. Now, Think of the economic impact to our city if we could plant 10 new churches tomorrow. More people on mission to our city. Now, you might say, well, actually, we don't really need more churches. We need better churches. We need the churches that we already have to get healthy or to go through a renewal process or to get revived or just to start growing again. Well, in one sense, you are right. Most churches that are over 10 years old do need some spiritual renewal. Pastors come and go. Visions ebb and flow. And spiritual 
lethargy kills a church's impact in their neighborhood or city. We want to continue to pray for the spiritual renewal and revival of all the churches in our city. We desperately need every single church to rediscover and remember the gospel and preach it week in and week out if we are going to renew the Quad Cities. But statistics show that the renewal of existing churches is not enough to bring real and lasting renewal to a city. First, studies show that when an older church undergoes renewal and begins to grow again, it primarily grows through transfer growth at the tune of 80 to 90% of its new members come from other churches. That's just moving Christians around from one church to another. Now, that is important. If a church is dying and they do lose vision, Christians have to go out and find a healthy place to worship and grow. But studies show that the older a church is, the less likely they are to reach people who don't know Jesus. Those same studies show that when a new church is planted and it grows, one third, between one-third and two-thirds of its people, it grows from those who do not currently attend any church. That means, statistically, a church plant will bring new people into the life of the body of Christ at five to eight times that of an older congregation of the same size. Now, I can't get into all the reasons for this. I would love to nerd out and just explain it all to you. But what this means for us, if we want to renew our cities, and one of the keys to accomplishing this is for people who don't know Christ and don't attend church would come to know him and would be a part of his body. The only way to significantly increase the number of Christians in a city is by significantly increasing the number of new churches in a city. The only way for us to accomplish our mission to renew our city is for us to keep planting new churches in our cities and beyond. Growing bigger won't do it. We've got to keep planting churches. Now, what I've offered so far are primarily pragmatic reasons for church planting. Statistics say it's vital, but we don't get our marching orders from statistics. We don't want to do just what works. We want to do what's right and what's good and what's biblical. And so it's important for us to see that church planting is the biblical way to renew a city. And that's why I chose such a long scripture reading from the book of Acts this morning. Our reading started in chapter 11. So if you can open up with me to chapter 11, uh, we're going to start at verse 19. I'm going to run through it quickly. But before I jump into it, let me put it into context. <clears throat> Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we failed to live, and then he chose to die the death that we deserve for our many sins in our place on the cross, appeasing the Father's wrath against us and setting us free from the wages of sin. But he didn't stop there. Jesus was resurrected to new life, he was witnessed by over 500 people, and then he ascended back into heaven to be with the Father from whom he came. And while in heaven with the Father, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to empower Christians to be his witnesses or missionaries to those who don't know the gospel. 
And in Acts 2, that spirit fell upon the believers who were gathered in prayer in a prayer meeting. They were now, after receiving the spirit, empowered for mission and sent to be uh, all about the mission of God, making disciples who make disciples. Now, it's interesting. The, the believers, they receive this at a prayer meeting and they do what most Christians do. They receive it and they say, thank you, Lord. Whew, we, are, we have the spirit and we're sent. Oh, awesome. Let's go to brunch. And so God decides to get these new believers moving. And how does he do it? He raises up this dude named Saul, a leading Jewish religious leader, to persecute the Christians. It is here where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is stoned to death. Paul is there holding the cloaks, approving of the murder. Now this event, the murder of a Christian for being a Christian, sends all these new Christians running, scattering. Oh, we're all going to die. And so they take off. It's called the diaspora, the, the sending, the, the sending away of all, all the Christians. But what's interesting is that while they're running for their life, in a sense, they're running to find a safe place to live and raise a family. While they're running and traveling to all these different cities, they were sharing the good news, the gospel along the way. They were telling people the good news of what Jesus had done for them. He's forgiven me. He's taken my place. He was crucified and he was resurrected and we saw him. And it was also here, not long after this, where the resurrected Jesus shows up to Saul on the road to Damascus and Saul flips his allegiances, and saw the persecutor of the church becomes a promoter of the church, the one who said Jesus is not the son of God and Jesus deserves to die and all those who follow him should die. Saul becomes the one who says Jesus is the son of God and I will give my life for this mission, this mission and this man. And now we come to our text this morning. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who in coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking people, the not-Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul's been converted now. And when he had found him, he brought Saul to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Here's what I want us to see. A church gets planted in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Then believers get scattered all the way out to Antioch. They start making disciples, gathering them together in a community, and they plant a church in the largest city in Syria at this time. About a half a million people, not much bigger than the Quad Cities. 
Then the elders in the church in Jerusalem, they hear about this work going on in Antioch and they send Barnabas to Antioch to check it out, to ensure that, you know, they're not going crazy and they're not teaching false doctrine and all these different things. And so Barnabas goes to Antioch and he makes sure that it's legit. And Barnabas realizes he needs help. He can't lead this church by himself. And so what does he do? Barnabas basically goes and gets a church planting resident. He goes and gets Saul and he brings Saul with him to Antioch and Saul and Barnabas begin teaching and training the believers and making disciples and equipping them to plant more churches in Antioch. All right? Now it's here where Saul, Paul, he goes by either one, Paul begins to settle for a year to be trained and equipped for church planting. And how does he get trained? He gets trained by teaching and training others. He's meeting with the church and he's teaching a great many people. Paul is being trained for ministry by doing ministry, by preaching the gospel and making disciples. Now go to Acts chapter 13. Now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Minian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have them. Okay, what you're going to see is this work is the work of making disciples and planting churches in other cities. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and look, sent them off. Remember, the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. The disciples and the apostles were sent through the persecution. And now Paul and Barnabas are being sent through, from the church of Antioch. Um, they begin to preach the gospel in, in city after city after city. Miracles start happening. People coming to faith. Exciting things. Paul starts getting beat up a lot. They stone him to death and they throw him out and they think he's dead and he wakes up and he says, I've got work to do. Let's go back to, let's go back to the city, he's still preaching the gospel. And if we could show that slide, the, the slide that I've got. Do I, did I have a map? Do I have a map? Okay. If you, up on the top right corner, you see Antioch. And this is where they start. Saul and Barnabas. And they go from Antioch to Seleucia. Seleucia, they set sail to Salamis. Salamis to Paphos. Paphos to Italia. Italia to Antioch. Antioch to Iconium. Iconium to Lystra. To Derby. all right? Now, here, they begin to kind of backtrack and come through. Now, here's what's happening. They're going from city to city to city, basically making disciples, preaching the gospel, making disciples. And then when they get to Derby, and this has been a, like a year or so, they decide, now let's go back through and let's check on all, this, on all the churches and let's appoint elders in all the churches, okay? So then they go back through and they come all the way back to Antioch. Now we're gonna kind of follow that just a little bit. Let's go to, let's jump to, um, where do I wanna jump to? Let's just jump to, uh, 15, is that where I was at? Or is it 14? 14, I'm sorry. Let's jump to 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe, where they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, 
and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay? So we see, listen, this is what's going on. Antioch was a church planting church. They, they commissioned, or first they brought in residents. They trained them. They equipped them. They allowed them to do ministry and learn how to do ministry. And then they anointed and sent them out to plant new churches. So they trained, they sent, they sent, they supported, they strengthened. They sent people to go back to these church plants to strengthen them. They helped them appoint elders and have oversight over um, over the churches. Now let's keep reading. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to, came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. So here we have Saul and Barnabas going back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Okay, here's what I want us to see. There's kind of a, a structure here. There's kind of a process here. A church gets planted and they're not just about growing this church bigger or going deeper in more discipleship or studying the original languages now. No, no, we wanna be about church planting. Let's go get a church planter. They go bring in Barnabas and Saul. They let Saul do ministry. They train them, they equip them. They send them out to go to unreached cities. And Saul and Barnabas go from city to city, preaching the gospel, making disciples. They get to the end of their journeys. They say, all right, it's time to go around. They go back. They go back to the same churches, the same cities. They strengthen these bodies. They appoint elders. So now they go from just discipleship kind of communities to actual churches because they have elders over them. And then as he makes his way back to Antioch, what does he do when he gets to Antioch? They celebrate. They go, you guys sent us out. You commissioned us to make disciples and plant churches. And guess what? God was pleased to bless the work that you sent us to do. And we made disciples here and here and here and here. And we've planted churches here and here and here and here. And God's brought elders here and here and here and here. And the mission of God is moving forward. And so let's celebrate that here at Antioch. Now, Sacred City. We want to be a church like Antioch. We want to train, send, support, strengthen, and celebrate church planting throughout our city, throughout our states, throughout our region, and throughout our world. It's the only way we are going to renew our cities for the glory of God, and it's the biblical commission for the church. Or what could keep us? And I'm just going to let you know, how are we doing that? 10% of our budget, 10% of our budget goes back to supporting church planters like Tyler. We support church planting in Kenya. We're planting churches in Kenya. We're planting churches in Detroit. We're supporting church planters in Iowa City. That I am overseeing uh, church planting for Acts 29 ne Network in Iowa. In the last 18 months, we went from one Acts 29 church, us, to five per, by the Lord's grace that we want to see more churches planted. 
But what's going to, here's the, here's the pushback. What's going to keep us from doing this? Honestly, there's only one thing that keeps us from doing this. There's only one thing that keeps churches. Can I just say, I don't know of an, another church in the Quad Cities who's plant, was a new, was planted a church and then planted another church and then maybe had that church plant another. I don't know of any other. I know a couple churches that have planted and grown big and maybe they have a satellite here or there. I don't know any church that's following this kind of Antioch model of being a church plant and planting more churches and sacrificing their own comfort and their own desires for the mission of God to see new people come to faith. I don't know any, of, I don't know any other church. We need more churches like this in the Quad Cities. Now, what's, what's going to keep us from being that church like Antioch? I think it's only one thing. We lose sight of the mission of God. And here's what happens to Christians and to churches when they lose sight of the mission of God. The mission of God to make disciples, to plant churches, to renew the city for the glory of God. We replace that mission with something else. And it's always something a little more palatable to us. Making disciples, planting churches is hard laborious work that requires a lot of sacrifice. Do you know, here's one, of the main reason, here's one of the main reasons that we will sacrifice the mission of God. We want things to be a little more comfortable for us. I want something that kind of works with my schedule, works with my season of life. I really just need a church that has a Saturday night service so my kids can play sports all day Sunday. I, I really want a church that just has my type of music or a pastor that I like or a pastor with the appropriate amount of tattoos. Right? I, I want him something here, you know, something like right here to let me know he's got a past, but not something up here that says he's a little crazy. Right? <laughs> I just like one appropriate amount of tattoos, right? I could go on and on. Listen, our life isn't meant to revolve around. Listen, our life, I'm going to restate that. Our life is meant to revolve around the mission of God and not the other way around. Please don't try to fit Jesus and Jesus's mission into your life. Shape your life around Jesus and his mission. Don't ask, how can my kids be on the, the two traveling sports team and still put Jesus first? More than likely, the answer is they can't, period. Our lives have to revolve around his mission. We don't find convenient ways to sneak him into our life's mission of raising popular successful, upper-middle-class kids that have bigger homes than their parents did. There is nothing more important than the mission of God. There is nothing eternal but the mission of God. And that is exactly what we want to remember. Constant, we need to beat it into our heads Every single week, we need to be reminded that's ultimate reality. Why is everybody else in our culture doing things that we can't do? 
We're number 15 on the post-Christian list up here, guys. We can't fit into our neighborhoods. We can't fit in with our neighbors. We can't even fit in with whatever church that only has a 40-minute sermon or a 40-minute service. I have a 40-minute sermon on a good day. (laughs) On a good day, it's 40 minutes. We can't fit in. It doesn't work. Listen, if we want to, 80, over 85% of the churches in our city right now have not made a new disciple this year and are declining in attendance. And in 10 and 15 years, they will be dead. We will not model our ministry after that. So if you want to go to a dead church that has a 20 minute homily, I'm, I'm sorry, right? I wouldn't do that if I were you. I wouldn't do that. We want this hour and a half or however long it is to be, we're here, to be one of the best hour and a half of our week where we are trained and equipped to go out there and make disciples. That's what we're trying to do. (laughs) It's my birthday. Give me five minutes. Come on. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Give me five minutes. I'll take five there and five up there and five over there. Come on with that. Listen, we should be encouraged that God is blessing us and that we have planted a church in what was six years at the time that we planted Moline and they've doubled in size since we planted them over there and God's filled our ranks again. We should be encouraged by that in a post-Christian society. But we should, and we should also kind of get some steel in our spine. Like we can cut, sometimes we can look around and go, why is it so hard? Why is making disciples and living in missional community and play, why is it so hard? It's so hard because our society as a whole is getting further and further and further away from what's been called Christendom. People just going to church, people understanding what church is and what the kingdom of God is and what the Bible teaches. Most of our neighbors don't know, and many of them just don't even care. And so it's going to be really hard to make disciples in that kind of environment. But there's good news for us. That's the same type of environment that the Apostle Paul was sent out to plant churches and make disciples in. You know, all these churches, all these places, he's not going and going, all right, what's, what's happening in the city with churches? They're like, what's church? Tell us, and we'd like to know. Oh, that's why I'm here, to make disciples and to create a church. And so, guys, our desire is to plant more churches in our city. And that's going to require us continually sacrificing financially, continually sacrificing our time, continually opening up our homes and bringing people in and not just inviting people to church, but explaining what church is to people before they come, right? Explaining the gospel to people, telling people what Jesus has done for you and why they need this in their life. It's not a coincidence that as we become more and more post-Christian, depression, anxiety, loneliness, all of these things are at an all-time high. People need God in their life. And you don't get God on your own in the woods in some kind of weird spirituality that you get to invent from pieces of different religions. You get God by knowing his son, Jesus Christ. And you know God better by being in his body, the church, surrounded by other Christians who are seeking to live their life for the glory of God. 
We have got to learn how to communicate this in a normal way to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. Because when you say, come to my church, they might have, who knows what they have in their mind. But I guarantee, or very, it's very unlikely that they have in their mind a place with normal people who still sin and still love one another and don't judge one another and a place where the spirit of God is moving and disciples are being made and the presence of God shows up on a Sunday and we get to lift our hands and sing with an amazing band. I doubt they have that in their mind. Maybe they have something that their mom made them do. Maybe they have dead religion. Maybe they have legalism that just requires them to adhere to a long list of rules. But they don't have a thriving, vital, living relationship with a living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to get good at sharing that in everyday language with our friends, families, and those who are on mission to. Thank you for that five minutes. And that's what we want to do this morning through the Lord's Supper. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper every single week. There's only one way to know God intimately. There's only one way to be forgiven of our sins, to be brought into the family of God, filled with God's spirit, and sent out on his mission in the world. And that is through the person and work of Jesus. The one who gave up everything so that you could know what it's like to be loved like that. Let us remember this love this morning in the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you for your mission if it wasn't for your mission, if Paul didn't do what Paul did, we wouldn't know you. The gospel just continued to go out from Jerusalem to the far reaches of the world, and now it's here today, and we're hearing it and preaching it and singing about it, and we're believing it, and we've been, been saved by it. So we thank you for your unstoppable mission, and thank you that you've brought us into that mission. Would we remember that? Would we turn from our sins and our ways of finding our meaning and identity outside of you and Embrace you by faith this morning. As the believers come to the Lord's table this morning, would we remember how Jesus is better than every other life story, every other narrative, every other idol, every other thing we want to center our life on, Jesus is better. The night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the remission of sins. And so, Father, we come this morning and we eat and we drink the gospel. God loves us through Jesus. We are forgiven, we are loved, we are brought in, and we have been sent out on mission for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.